0: Good morning. Welcome here. I was texting a lot of people to, we had someone back out for nursery and I was texted, I don't know, a lot of people last night and everyone was like, I'm in BC. I was like, cool. So if this sucks, then we're fine because no one's here. So I'm glad you're here. I'm glad people are here because I texted so many people last night and so many people are gone. So Thanks for being here. Glad you're here. Uh, Good morning. We are doing, as we saw, a series called Songs of the Summer. We're going through a few different books of the Psalms, uh, just kind of talking about a few different ones going through. And I don't know about you, but usually when I think about the Psalms, I think of them as uplifting, I think of them as encouraging, I think of them as somewhere to go if I need a pick-me-up of some kind. Um, But if you actually read through a lot of the Psalms, There's a lot of of not-so-happy, not-kind-of-feeling-like-it's-lifting-me-up stuff in there. So psalms, songs, are a very significant part of our culture. I have a song for, like, every mood, every situation. If you're one of my close friends or family, like, I burst out into song for anything and everything, especially Disney songs. I'm pretty sure my husband, Colin, feels like our life is a musical because I sing to him a lot. And uh, he's never seen The Sound of Music, but part of me feels like maybe he doesn't need to because my reenactment is pretty good. It's pretty good. He's probably seen most of it just via me. So, uh, yeah, I, I like to sing a lot. I love songs. I love music. I love when I'm reading a song and I'm like, hey. Hey. I know, like, a song that we've made out of this psalm. And then it kind of feels like I've memorized it, but without the work of memorizing it, because I can just sing along to it. So, for example, John Foreman of Psalm 23, we did that last, last summer. We did Psalm 23 about a year ago. Uh, and so reading through that, I was like, yeah, I know this, I can sing along to it, and it's just really, really awesome. And so when I read something like Psalm 23... It's really easy when I read that for me to think, okay, this, I can see how that was relevant then. I can see how it connects to today. Psalm 23, one of the verses, surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. I will live in the house of the Lord forever. It's awesome. It's encouraging. I can see how that made sense. And then sometimes you read psalms that create a bit of tension when you read them. And, of course, I decided that's the one that we're going to look at today. I thought that was a good idea. So we're going to read a psalm that when you read it, it there's this, a bit of tension when you read it, and maybe what we do with it today is a little bit less clear. So the psalms are a compiling of a bunch of different writings, songs by David and a few other authors, and these writings weren't really seeking to give answers. They were giving questions. They were giving thoughts. They were giving feelings and bringing them towards just bringing them to God. They're full of the good and the bad and the ugly of the life of their authors, none of whom were trying to create a textbook on the character of God, but were simply coming before Him with what they had and what they knew and not really holding back. They asked their questions. They cried out for help. They fell down in worship. They raged at injustice. They came as they were. They brought what they had, what they knew, and they gave it to God. And that's kind of what I want to do today. So our passage this morning is Psalm 7. uh, So you can turn there in your Bibles or on your devices. It'll also be on the screen. Uh, if If you have a heading at the top of your Bible, it'll say something along the lines of this. A Psalm of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, the tribe of Benjamin. Now we don't know all the details, but Cush probably could have been someone who was accusing David falsely of things to King Saul, and King Saul already resented David. And so if we look at David's life, according to the biblical narrative, which we have not really in Psalms, but in First and Second Samuel, we see a man who no one believed in, whose anointing and rulership wasn't respected for a long time, who was on the run for a large part of his life, who made some really, really bad decisions, who fought many battles, lost many loved ones. So it's kind of hard. It's hard to know the exact timing of each Psalm, but we can know that David was a man with a lot of hardship. And enemies, and this comes out in his writing and in his songs and his crying out to God. So Psalm 7, David is crying out to God, and we're going to read this together. I come to you for protection, O Lord my God. Save me from my persecutors. Rescue me. If you don't, they'll maul me like a lion, tearing me to pieces with no one to rescue me. O Lord my God, if I have done wrong or am guilty of injustice, if I have betrayed a friend or plundered my enemy without cause... Then let my enemies capture me. Let them trample me into the ground and drag my honor in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in anger. Stand up against the fury of my enemies. Wake up, my God, and bring justice. Gather the nations before you. Rule over them from on high. The Lord judges the nations. Declare me righteous, O God, for I am innocent, O Most High. End the evil of those who are wicked and defend the righteous. If you look deep, For you look deep within the mind and heart, O righteous God. God is my shield, saving those whose hearts are true and right. God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. If a person does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He will prepare his deadly weapons and shoot his flaming arrows. The wicked conceive evil, they are pregnant with trouble, they give birth to lies. They dig a deep pit to trap others, then fall into it themselves. The trouble they make for others backfires on them. The violence they plan falls on their own heads. I will thank the Lord because he is just. I will sing the praise of the name of the Lord Most High. It's not exactly like the most encouraging psalm you'll read. (laughs) There's a lot more encouraging ones out there, right? We tend not to read stuff like this very often. Stuff like, you know, those words in verse 12 and 13 that says, if a person doesn't repent, God will sharpen his sword. He'll prepare his deadly weapons. Those kind of verses, they don't really sit very well with us. Anger, enemies, justice. What do we do with this today? How on earth do we read this and respond and figure out what we're supposed to do with it? And sometimes I would rather just kind of leave those questions unanswered because it's a lot easier. But I realized that I can't do that. Because how we respond to stuff like this actually shapes what we believe it is that God is saving us from. What Jesus came to defeat. What the good news is that we believe Jesus has given us a mission to spread. Because if your good news is broken down to be, if you don't accept God, you're his enemy. And Psalm 7 says that if you don't repent, he's angry with you and he's going to sharpen his sword against you, so watch out. You could easily read that through the Psalms in different parts of the Bible. You could conclude that is true, live your life, live your faith that way. But the problem is, that's not very good news. So today I want to kind of bring my own psalm before the Lord in our time together of my, my questions, my thoughts, my feelings as the Spirit leads me when I'm reading through Scripture about enemies and about how God calls us to respond. And like the Psalms, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to give you all the answers, but I'm, I'm going to lay out what I know according to what I see in the whole of Scripture saying and hope it gives us a bit of a clearer picture of an understanding of what Jesus saves us from and then what just makes the good news so good. So we're going to ask some questions together. First question, how do we read Scripture like our one today, Psalm 7, that's operating under the old promise, the old law, the old testament? This is a really, really big question. I don't have it all figured out. That's an understatement that I don't have it all figured out. But here's what I do have. In Matthew 5, Jesus addresses this very question. And I think this is where we need to start and where we can go to ask about our enemies and how we respond. So we're going to go, we're going to spend some time in Matthew 5. So if you want to actually, you can also turn there in your Bibles or on your devices, follow along on the screen. Matthew 5, and we're going to start in verse 17 and work through a bunch of this chapter. This is Jesus talking. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus came to accomplish the purpose of the law. So this is the law that David was operating in when he's calling out to God, and he's saying, if I have done wrong, or I'm guilty of injustice, I've betrayed a friend, or if i plundered my enemy without cause, let my enemies capture me let them trample me to the ground drag my honor into the dust david was operating under the law that says in exodus 2124 leviticus 2420 deuteronomy 1921 three times that punishment must match the injury an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth that's what david was operating under when he wrote the words that he wrote but jesus came to fulfill the law And when doing that, what he came to do is to show people what was was the purpose of the law. What did he came to fulfill? Well, the law was to show people that they needed God. It was to show us that we can't do this life on our own. It showed that any sacrifice you bring before God, you're just going to have to bring it again. Any sort of justice we have that we can bring on earth somehow still isn't enough, still doesn't make things right. The Pharisees and the teachers that Jesus is calling everyone to act like in Matthew 5, Jesus had a lot to say about these kinds of people, and most of it was not very good. Because they took the law, and then they increased it. And they made everything about following the rules, being as perfect as you could. And he's saying, okay then, step up. Let's do this. But if you want to do this, there's a lot more than what the Pharisees are even saying. So Jesus isn't saying at the end there in verse 20 that if you're not perfect, guess what? You're one of God's enemies now. And that means you get what David's calling to happen to his enemies. Prepare for the sword. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying it's actually not about being perfect. It's about doing this gift that we have that is life with God. It's about living our created purpose, which is to have a relationship with and dependent on him by choice, out of love, which overflows into our love for others. And so he's saying, if you're going to make it all about the rules, we're going to see as we continue through this passage, Jesus is actually really saying, if you're going to make it all about the rules, then make it about loving people. Make it about loving people. So he continues in Matthew 5, and Jesus addresses some of the issues that we have in our passage about enemies and revenge. Before we get there, though, I want to look at a few other things that Jesus addresses as well about the old law and what he's come to do, because I think it helps make this all a little bit more clear. So still in Matthew 5, verse 21, you've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. That's from Exodus 20:13, Deuteronomy 5:17. But if I say, but I say, if you're even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Did you know the Bible said idiot? I was, this is the NLT version, and I was like, nice, cool. <laughs> Anyways, that's not relevant. Jesus is saying, is he saying, that the law not to commit murder was wrong. Is that what he's saying? No. It's still wrong to commit murder, in case you didn't know that. Still wrong. God, has God changed his mind? No. He's saying that was actually only part of it. He's saying, I'm now revealing to you a bigger picture of God's heart towards life, and it's not just about the breath in your lungs, it's about how we treat each other. Let's go see another one. Verse 27, still in Matthew 5. You've heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. That's the next two verses from before he was referencing, Exodus 20, 14, Deuteronomy 5, 18. But I say, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. Is Jesus saying that the law not to commit adultery was wrong? Is that what he's saying? No. God hasn't changed his mind. He's saying it's only part of it. He's saying, I'm now revealing you to you a bigger picture of God's heart towards relationships and commitment so we're going to keep going Matthew 5 38 this time we're going to see what Jesus has to say about God's revenge verse 38 you've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but I say do not resist an evil person if someone slaps you on the right cheek offer the other cheek also if you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you give your coat too. If a soldier demands to carry his gear for a mile, carry it for two miles. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. So is Jesus saying that the law about bringing justice when wrong has been done was wrong? That God's changed his mind? No. He's saying that was only part of it. He's saying, I'm now revealing to you a bigger picture of God's heart towards injustice. It doesn't mean God no longer cares about it, but it means that God's justice looks a lot more like grace than we think. One more, Matthew 5, down to verse 43. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight both to the evil and the evil. And the good he sends rains on the just and the unjust alike if you only love those who love you what reward is there for that even corrupt tax collectors do that much if you're kind only to your friends how are you different from anyone else even pagans do that so is Jesus saying that the law to not be okay with people who commit evil is wrong that God's changed his mind about that no he's saying that was only part of it he's saying I'm now revealing to you the bigger picture of God's heart towards all people even those who might be our enemies God's justice is far more radical than we can ask or imagine and if you've got an issue with God showing more grace than you think he should I would argue that you've got some bigger issues to address in your heart Because Jesus did not come to condemn the lost and the sick. He came to save them. And this leads us to ask a very important question. When we read David's outcry to God to save him from his enemies, reading it today, we need to ask, who is our enemy? Who is our enemy? My mind immediately goes to Ephesians 6 with this question because it also addresses a second really important question, who is not our enemy? So we're going to look at Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For you are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6 shows us that the enemy is not people. The enemy is not the person who has wronged you, the person who has wronged your family. Listen again, Psalm 714, the wicked conceive evil, they're pregnant with trouble, they give birth to lies. That's reproduction language. The enemy's favorite tactic is to take what's true and then twist it just slightly. So where do you think that he got the idea to re- reproduce and grow his mission through People. The enemy works through people, yeah. He tempts people, yeah. People choose to say yes to the enemy, to be a part of his kingdom, but the enemy is not people. The enemy is actually the unseen, demonic, spiritual world, and he is real and he is working, and what a perfect strategy to make himself look like people. Do not be deceived. He's been deceiving since the beginning. Do not be deceived. The enemy is not people. There's a lot we could do with this with Ephesians 6. We could do a whole sermon sermon series on Ephesians 6. There's a lot there. But I want to go back to David's outcry to God to defeat his enemies. So our next question I want to ask is, how does God call us to respond to people who we would see as our enemies? Paul, who wrote the letter to the Ephesians, who's writing this that we just read in chapter 6, he continues. And he calls us actually to respond to our enemies in this way. Therefore, therefore meaning understanding that the enemy is not people, but the unseen world, put on every piece of God's armor so you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you'll be standing firm, stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth, the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on peace that comes from the good news so you'll be fully prepared. In addition to all those, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times, in every occasion. Stay alert. Be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And pray for me too. This is Paul. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan, that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. I am in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassador, so pray that I'll keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. Those last two verses are really important because Paul's not writing this from a comfy office chair. He's writing this in chains in prison, and it was not a very nice prison. Paul, like David, was a man with enemies, but Paul, unlike David, was living after the risen Christ after God came to fully reveal himself in Jesus, after Jesus had come to accomplish the purpose of the law, as we read in Matthew 5, and that changed things. Paul responds to injustice, not with powering down and giving in, not with saying it's okay, but with boldness that stems from love. The enemy is not people. God does not call us to take up arms to put on literal battle gear, but to equip ourselves with him. Ephesians 6 says the armor of God is truth, peace, salvation, faith, staying firm in the spirit. It's no accident that Paul used armor language to fight enemies because we're in a battle. That's true. We are in a battle. But he didn't give a battle cry with swords. He cried out for faithfulness and steadfast prayer. God, Jesus did not come to defeat people. came to save people we may have people we consider our enemies david did paul did you might but even the worst of our enemies the worst people in the whole world that we can think of they as human beings who are created in the image of god just as you and i are not who jesus came to defeat the enemy is not people the enemy is unseen yes but it doesn't mean we can't see the work that's being done by the enemy. It doesn't mean the enemy is not active as clear as day. We can see addiction. We know it's there. But can we actually see it? We can see the workings of it. We know it's a battle to get through addiction. We don't blame a person for succumbing to addiction. They need to be held accountable for choices and actions that have contributed to a problem, yes. But we know that addiction isn't just making poor choices. We know that addiction is powerful, dark, unseen. Can't ignore it. It takes work. It's a fight, and it's not a fight that can be done alone. So we can't see the enemy, but the enemy is there, and it's a battle to get through it. And we don't blame a person for succumbing to the enemy. Do we need to be held accountable for our choices and our actions that have contributed to problems? Yeah, but we need to know that it's more than just making poor choices. The enemy is powerful and dark and unseen, and we can't ignore it, and the fight can't be done alone. You need to be equipped for the battle. And so if you can't see the workings of the enemy, which is sin, and when I say sin, I'm not saying like the bad stuff that you've done. Yeah, it's part of it. But sin is anything that's outside of our created purpose, anything that turns us away from God, that breaks shalom, that breaks that perfect relationship with us and God and each other and ourselves. the enemy, which is sin, brokenness, death, if you can't see that as the enemy, maybe you've made yourself a blind to it. Maybe you think you've blocked out the enemy with the comforts of the upper middle class life that most of us in this room live. And if you've done that, it can be really, really hard to see that you need a savior and to understand what makes the good news so good. Because if all you've got to say to someone on why they should follow Jesus is an appeal to the afterlife, you don't get it. Jesus saves for right now. The good news isn't something that is going to happen. It is happening right now, right now. So stop searching for the one-day kingdom because you're going to miss the one that is in front of you right now that has been here the whole time, the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate. The kingdom is already not yet. So yeah, we live in tension and anticipation, yeah. But if that's only where you live, be careful not to miss what puts the tension there in the first place, which is the fact that the kingdom is fully accessible right here, right now. Jesus has saved. It is finished. The enemy has been defeated. Sin and death still exist, yeah, but they no longer reign. Sin and death still happen, but it holds no grip on me, and that's the good news, and it is right now. Don't be blind to the battle. Don't miss the kingdom, because while Christ is on the throne now and forever, and we can be confident in that, the enemy is unseen and still working. Still pulling us away from the kingdom. And so for me, that looks like self sufficiency. It looks like independence. It looks like knowledge, especially knowledge of the Bible. It's securities that I've built up. It's progress that makes me feel like I don't need saving, that blinds me from seeing the enemy working right in front of me. We need saving. So how do I respond to people who look like my enemies? How do I respond to injustice? Jesus calls us to meet injustice with love. Matthew 5, 46 to 47 again, love your enemies. If you only love those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. Even corrupt politicians do that. Even corrupt businessmen do that. If you're only kind to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. Even the person who's hurt you does that. If your understanding of justice looks more like revenge than grace, you are not living in the freedom of Jesus. God's justice isn't just spiritual, the good news doesn't only become good news when life is easy. God's justice doesn't look like revenge, it looks like restoration. David was hoping for this justice that looked kind of like karma. In verse 3 to 5 in Psalm 7, he says, you know, if he's been the enemy, punish him. God, sharpen your sword against me. David knew about the promised king. He knew about him. He was hoping that the king would come, kill all his enemies, so that he could experience peace. But David actually never met this king on earth. But if you know Jesus, you know this king you know a little bit about his life, we know that this king actually looked a little bit, no, very different from what David expected. Jesus' response was not to fight anger with more anger, injustice with more injustice, but to take it on and to overcome it with peace. Instead of bringing death as the answer for injustice, God's justice brings life. So if our enemy is not people, but the reality of sin and death and the active efforts of the unseen world to work against God's kingdom, and the good news, which is for all people, is that Jesus has defeated the enemy so we can face that without fear, so we can face the enemy without fear and find life and restoration in him to be who he has created us to be and experience that life right now, the question that I want us to really ponder is is how do we make the good news tangible in our everyday life? How do I, in all my comforts, see my need for a savior so that I'm not just living for a one-day kingdom, but I'm calling for God's restoration in the here and now? If the good news isn't tangible for you, I challenge you that maybe you need to change how you're spending some of your time. If the good news is intangible for you, if your burdens aren't too heavy for you to carry, or you've deceived yourself to think that they aren't, go find someone who can show you how badly you need a Savior not so that you can go pick up some more burdens, so life can get heavy but so you can see that you actually already have them and if you are not actively asking Jesus to free you from them you may have no idea what kind of hold they have on you because that is the danger of the unseen world in our North American culture it is all too easy to pretend they don't exist for enemies to be people which we fight fight with flesh and blood. But like the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, it doesn't work because it doesn't last. It's temporary. So I make the good news tangible in my everyday life by having a sponsor child. I make the good news tangible by volunteering with the ELL, English Language Learning Ministries, because I actually need to spend time with people who don't look like me. I make the good news tangible by having real relationships with people that don't hide the hard days. And I know that there's a lot more I could do. Something simple. I make the good news tangible by having a social media that doesn't hide the hard days. It's little, but it's a first step. There's lots more I could do. Calgary Pregnancy Care Centre, The Mustard Seed, Dirty Canada, Partners Relief. There are people in this church who represent some really amazing organizations. Dan Bremnis showed us another one. There's lots out there find one get involved in bringing restoration to our city and make it tangible why do you think the Mexico trip has such an impact on the students who go and on our church think about it the gospel thrives in places of hardship and persecution why is that because in persecution the enemy is tangible. And when the enemy is tangible, the need for a savior becomes tangible. And when the need for a savior becomes tangible, the good news becomes tangible. Why do you think Jesus had to come to earth in human flesh? Because God's justice isn't just spiritual. I don't actually, well, maybe this is wrong, but I'm going to say anyways, I don't think that the incarnation would have been necessary, that a physical death would have been necessary if the physical restoration of this world didn't matter so much. God's justice and restoration is a lot more tangible than we tend to think. Think about something that has happened to you in your life that was unfair, that was wrong. Maybe a friend has seriously betrayed you, someone's abandoned you, Maybe someone's hurt you, maybe even physically. Where maybe you are still, are you still hurting? Does it make you angry? Arise, O Lord, in anger. Stand up against the fury of my enemies. Wake up, my God, and bring justice. We all long for justice. David longed for justice. Why? Because God longs for justice. We're his image bearers. And so that that desire that we have, that heart that we have for justice is actually his heart. Our deepest longings to the core of who we are are from him. But we can manipulate them. And we can make our cry for justice look like revenge instead of restoration. People may be under the influence of the enemy. People may choose to live in the kingdom of the enemy. But people are not the enemy. When we make people the enemy, when we turn justice into revenge, revenge leaves very, very little room for grace. And I'm so quick to receive God's grace, but so reluctant to give it out. Because I could never be God's enemy. But every time I say yes to my own kingdom instead of God's, I actually am making myself his enemy. Every time I say yes to my temptations to be selfish, To the unseen world at work, I'm making myself God's enemy. And I know that God still accepts me. I know if I turn to Him, He'll accept me with open arms. I just hate the thought that He'd do it for anyone else that I don't think deserves it or deserves it less than I do. It's pretty twisted when I actually say it out loud. God hates evil, He hates injustice, He hates that you have been hurt. It makes them angry, but not in the irrational, emotional sense that we've come to experience anger, but the way that a parent who loves their child gets angry when their child makes a poor choice. Or maybe you see a good friend or a family member making poor choices. You get angry because you love them so much, and you know that the poor choices that they're making are going to have an impact on them. That there's going to be consequences, and you can't always protect your child or your friend or your family member from those consequences if they aren't willing to stop. There are consequences from turning away from God. We see that in Psalm 7. The wicked conceive evil, they're pregnant with trouble, they give birth to lies, they dig a deep pit to trap others, then fall into it themselves. The trouble they make for others backfires on them. The violence they plan falls on their own heads. And this isn't karma. This isn't an eye for an eye. But when we turn away from God, we're turning away from our created purpose. And there are consequences for that. But that's a choice that God gives us. He doesn't force us to turn to him. He respects our choices. He fights for us. He's always reaching out a helping hand, but we actually have to choose to take it. God's justice is good and fair. It doesn't look like revenge. It brings restoration. It's beautiful. It's full of hope. It's the good news. Will you accept it? Because you have a choice to do that or not. You have a choice to say yes to God's grace, to laying down your own kingdom and the false comforts of the unseen world and saying yes to God's kingdom or not. You can say no. God will not force you to accept him. He will not force you to allow Jesus to be your advocate. If you want to speak for yourself, that's your God-given choice. Independence. But that's a dangerously unseen place to live. You can live there if you want. God's not going to stop you because he values your will to choose him. Your genuine love more than anything else. He genuinely loves you which means he will not force you to love him back. Will you accept God's justice? Do you trust him enough to trust that he always says yes to those who genuinely call out to him? Will you let him restore you to be who you were fully created to be, to flourish in ways you can't even imagine, all because you accepted your need for a savior? And if you'll accept God's justice, will you give it? I feel like there's a lot of people in this room who God is inviting to take an, an action step of some tangible restoration. Maybe you need to let go of some of your comforts. Maybe if there's something kind of in the back of your mind, a comfort that's nudging you, making you feel a little bit uncomfortable, that thing that you're like, not that. Pray into that. Ask someone around you to pray for you. See what God's trying to say in that. Maybe you need to contact Janice at the Pregnancy Care Center, Kendra with the mustard seed, Greg with partners. Maybe you need to go on the El Salvador trip in the fall to take a step to wake yourself up to the needs around you, to the need for a Savior and bring some restoration. Maybe you need to give forgiveness that you've been withholding because you're scared that if you give forgiveness, it'll leave your situation unjust. Because if you've been hurt, the situation actually is already unjust. Justice doesn't ignore the wrong that's been done, but it also doesn't add to it. I don't know what God's calling you specifically, personally to do, but I do know that he's calling all of us to build his kingdom right here, right now. And it's tangible. Will you dare to hope that his justice goes beyond you That you can be a vessel of tangible restoration that brings the kingdom of God right now. When I consider God's justice, I'm so grateful to know that it's not my decision to decide how to judge everyone. I don't want to make that call. When I consider God's justice, I'm so grateful that His fairness isn't limited like our justice system to an eye for an eye economy. I'm so grateful that God defends the righteous. He looks deep within the mind and heart, O righteous God, he is my shield, saving those whose hearts are true and right. God is an honest judge. God knows each of our hearts. There's no chance of God messing it up, of anyone being falsely accused before God. He knows your heart. When I consider God's justice, I am grateful to know that God has given me grace. Because I have turned from God. But Jesus is our advocate. And when we invite and allow Jesus to be our advocate, he takes on our sin and he hands back grace. And I am so grateful that God's love extends grace in greater ways than I can even imagine or hope for. I hope for God's justice, which means I hope not for revenge, but restoration. And I hope that for my enemies, too. Psalm 7 closes, and I'll close with this as well. I'll thank the Lord because he is just. I will sing the praise to the name of the Lord most high. Let's pray. God, you are so good. And we confess that often we try and make you look like us instead of the other way around. We try and make your justice look like our justice. We try and make our desire for revenge what you want. So we pray that you would soften our hearts to the people around us, to the people who have hurt us, to respond to them in ways that don't make what's been wrong okay, but actually fight it with love, that fight it with your armor. Peace, faith, steadfast prayer, Give us the courage to fight that battle. Give us the courage to be willing to see the unseen world and not make ourselves blind to it. Give us the courage to see it so we can fight it and help us make your kingdom tangible right here, right now. In Jesus' name, amen.